Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the September 20th, 22 edition of Ask a Leader. Happy National Voter Registration Day. I'm done announcing state primaries because they're all past us, and now we're going into the midterms, all of us together. So with Registration Day today, let's all fan out and make sure everyone is on this. Today, we're hanging out down ballot, three hours at least worth of civics in under one hour. There won't be a quiz after the show, but voters must complete all their ballots which includes the two races we're covering today. My first guest will be Randall Crane, professor emeritus at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. Irvine Resin, he's running in Division 5 of the Municipal Water District of Orange County. In the second segment, Brandall Lynn, co-founder of Irvine Watchdog, this time dons her candidate hat in her bid to run for mayor of Irvine. She's one of four candidates challenging the incumbent mayor. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest, first guest, is Randall Crane, Professor Emeritus at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs and Irvine resident. He's a candidate for Director of Division 5 of the Municipal Water District of Orange County against the incumbent Sat Tamaribuchi. It's a four-year term. Each division represents a different portion of Orange County. The fifth division includes Newport Beach, Laguna Woods, portions of Irvine, Lake Forest, Laguna Hills, Alisa Viejo, and parts of Mission Viejo. And I believe that, that in his own, um, on the incumbent's website, he talks about what parts that it includes, and then he talks about parts served, but I'm not sure if that distinction is something we need to worry about. And there's just a few unincorporated areas. Academic professionals typically have a really long resume or a CV, so faculty out there, just please put up with my shorthand. We've too much to cover today. Randall Crane attended Paradise High. I wonder, was it that one, that Paradise High? That's... I just got that. That was wild when I read that. I didn't know that about you. Completed his BA in history at UC Santa Barbara, his master's in city and regional planning at Ohio State University, and his PhD at MIT. His work has taken him to Indonesia, to Kenya. I'm going to really do this shorthand uh, Mexico City, and with different World Bank gigs. Uh, stateside, he was associate director of UCLA Institute of Transportation Studies, senior urban fellow at the World Resources Institute for Sustainable Cities. And he's designed structural governance reforms for the water system of the San Francisco Bay Area for the state of California. His courses in water governance and management spans the decades at UCI and UCLA. He's currently a board member of Orange County Goes Solar. He joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Randall Crane. Good morning. Thanks to be here. So thank you. Well, I'm going to be addressing him by his first name as I'm well acquainted with him at UCI and in our shared community over the last three decades. So first... Randy, a little institutional knowledge for listeners about the Municipal Water District of Orange County. 
its relationship to our Irvine Ranch Water Districts and other districts and how it differs from those different authorities. And because I know that's an interest to our listeners and whose water is the purview of the MODOC, which is the shorthand for the Municipal District of Orange County. Thanks. Uh, that's a good place to start because it's kind of confusing. I like to call the Municipal Water District of Orange County the most important Orange County government people have never heard of or probably never heard of. The water system, as probably most people know, we get about half of Orange County's water from Northern California from the Colorado River, probably the two most climate-stressed sources of water in the region. And that's already, that is so now on everybody's radar. We've seen all the really graphic shots of the much, much lowered water levels. I think people, everyone knows we're in a drought. It's pretty obvious. On the other hand, or a I don't know if everyone... We'll, ask. we'll ask about that distinction, but the drought sure. versus mega um, But go ahead, sorry. I don't know if everyone knows that it's the worst drought in, in 12 centuries. I mean, and, and this is the life as we expect it to be in the future. So the Municipal Water District imports water to Orange County. It buys water from the larger regional water district called the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which, which is in charge of the aqueducts and channels that bring water from the Colorado and Northern California. And then it, it buys the water for Orange County, all of Orange County, with the exception of three cities, Anaheim, Fullerton, and Santa Ana, and resells that water to the retail districts. So you mentioned the IRWD, the Irvine Ranch Water District. That's probably one of the largest water districts in Orange County. It's, it serves basically the former Irvine Ranch. So it um, is what's called as a retail water district. It has customers. The municipal water district is important because... Its customers are the retail districts. So it doesn't actually sell water to individuals or businesses. It sells water to the people that do sell water. So it's a wholesale water district. Okay. So, and what, Irvine <clears throat> Ranch Water is the retail. Yes. I mean, it'd be better to have, uh, we, we can't have whiteboards on radio. But if I can map well, it out for you. Well, we're used to them with our congresswoman. But yes, we can, <laughs> we can do the whiteboards in our heads. Uh, I hope so. So the water is coming in. From the north of California, which now our, our allocation of that water, which is called the State Water Project, is, is down to 5% of its normal level. And the Colorado River water, you may have heard, because it's been covered pretty extensively now, there are seven basin states that, that share that water. The federal government is in charge of it, and they've said we have to lower our use. So they're all in negotiations. So it's a situation that's a little bit in flux. But again, the municipal water district is important because its its only responsibility is to import water into Orange County, and then resell it to your retail water districts. Thank you. You're so welcome. thank you. So and and I've jumped on you a little early, but this is the, what I want to bring up is the distinction with, between drought and mega drought. So I guess people are trying to just keep everybody's attention and use the shortest hand possible. But mega drought really is what should be organizing our our imaginations and our keen focus around. Mega drought is the term that's being used to describe the drought we're in. I mean, again, it's the worst in 1,200 years. So I don't know that mega has a specific scientific meaning, but it's a super drought. And that's the point that needs to get across. Not only that, it's more what our future is going to be like than our past. Okay. So I've been in the, I don't know, have you ever been in the boardroom of the Metropolitan Water District? No. And have you been in the agency district water board meetings? No. Been inside. Because for me, it's a real eye-opener, that whole dynamic where you you see there's over there up on somebody's PowerPoint. It's the whole 
Colorado River drainage basin. I mean, and you've seen drainage basins in your consulting all around the world and how how that it there's people that are making pivotal decisions. So I want us because this this position that you're running for, that some of them, some of these division directors are do they rotate into the Met representation, the they Metropolitan do. Water District? Sorry, uh, they do uh, rotate somewhat. So you you raise an important point. So one of the sort of what I call the geopolitical importance of the Municipal Water District of Orange County is that it has votes on the Metropolitan Water District Board. So an unusual thing about the Municipal Water District is that its board is elected. But the the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, its board is composed of officials and elected officials from across all urban Southern California. So the Municipal Water District has four votes on the Metropolitan Water District Board. And those are very important votes. It's the third largest block in the Metropolitan Water District after the city of L.A. and, and San Diego County. So it's, it's very important. Orange County also has three additional votes from Anaheim, Fullerton, and Santa Ana. So it has seven votes in total. They, don't, they obviously are independent of each other. But they are very important in terms of having influence on a water district, the Metropolitan Water District, that provides water to 20 million people in Southern California. And again, its sole sources now are Northern California water and the Colorado River. It was originally formed to bring Colorado River water in. And then as the state water project was completed in the 70s, it took over that as well. But uh, the groundwater lens, like which Irvine Ranch Water District draws from, that no, there is no groundwater source for the Metropolitan Water District? So the Metropolitan Water District has is developing... It's it's a very big, very complicated. They have its own building near Union Station Agency, so they're doing a lot of things like reclaimed water. They're trying to work on on actually recharging aquifers. In Orange County, however, the Municipal Water District of Orange County, it's a little. This language is a little bit um, bizarre. Oh, go for it. Break it down. Make it easy. But it only imports water. So its wholesale counterpart, as we say in Orange County, is the Orange County Water District. So the Orange County Water District in Orange County, does uh, manages the aquifer. There's a basin that's pretty much under the Santa Ana River. So it's a basin that's focused on northern Orange County. South Orange County doesn't have access to the aquifer water. But one of the really good things, I mean, the water districts in, in Orange County have been pretty good, particularly the larger big ones like Moulton Niguel, Irvine Ranch Water District. Orange County Water District has the largest water reclamation plant in the world right now. And they use that to recharge the aquifer. So the aquifer is, in Orange County is seen as a very dependable. They call it drought resistance. I, I don't think that that's exactly accurate. But they are definitely de- developing sources within the county so we can reuse our water as much as possible. Okay, so this is going to get at an interesting point maybe to develop later because we're, we're really still talking about these institutions. But I want to get at that, yes, Orange County's water district has been an exemplary uh, sort of model for uh, the, the available technology with the, the tertiary treatment. And I remember it was actually one of your colleagues that was uh, actually he was running interference a while back. I'm not going to drop names, but it was it. So there I, I want um, to get to that point where there is a there's decisions to do highly centralized plants. And I want to get to that. That's going to be my last question you can back your head process about distributed water versus the uh, centralized kind of infrastructure because of that. It seems like when you're dealing with a mega drought, when you're dealing with the worst in 12,000 years, that you've got to use every single tool. But, but I want to, so back to the boardroom. So 
I, I look at this power in this room and I, I want to get at the leadership question. And what, what's your construct of leadership in water management? What is it? Um, how do you distinguish yourself from the status quo? Because we've, we've got here, it's a slow motion kind of disaster for people that, I mean, I, I have acquaintances whose fathers, who are deceased now, whose fathers knew this was coming. So this is a long, long unrolling of a catastrophe. And I, I don't think I'm being alarmist. I'm, just, I, I'm really trying to frame the urgency of all this while we have an opportunity to interview you, and I hope the incumbent too, is what is your take, what is your profile as a prospective water district manager in, um, in stepping up leadership to take what hasn't been taken before and running with it to manage this colossal kind of, of, of scarcity that's upon us? It's, it's, it's a challenge. There's no reason to be alarmist, as you say. I mean, right now, Orange County in particular is in pretty good shape, but the future is more uncertain. So the Municipal Water District is in kind of a unique role in Orange County particularly. It's bringing water in, and then it's reselling it to retailers. So upstream, it's got these mega droughts, climate change to deal with. And that is not obviously a priority for the district. You will, if you go to their website, go on their homepage, go on their news page, you don't see any mention of climate change. You see... It's you very see, calm, actually. It's calm, like nothing happening here calm. I think in, there's always an instinct to try to be reassuring. But on the other hand, you said it's slow moving, but you know we've seen this drought catch up with us in a way that we need to catch up to. And it's not clear that the agency has prioritized that in the way that they should. So they have their influence on the Metropolitan Water District. They have their own influence in terms of how they're going to plan and manage for Orange County's resources in the future. And then downstream, they have all these retailers and cities that they could do more conservation with. So my interest is in doing climate action planning uh, for the near term and for the long term, and also managing conservation downstream. Okay, so that leadership, I mean, I have had lots of water activists on this show over the years, and they're, they're really quite frantic about how very traditionally minded the leadership is. And when there are, there's the water dialogues. Actually, that's the next water dialogues out of the Met are coming up next Wednesday. I have to remember that. And there is, there's a reticence in, on the governor's level and, there, and on the, the Met leadership level. And it shows up when staff present at the the Water Dialogues monthly meetings to sort of, you know, just barely state what it is, bury it in a lot of real uh, intense acronyms and things like that. And and the, the activists know there's a backstory that just isn't making it out in the presentation. So I just don't know what what kind of a, a what leadership you'd bring to. The, I'm going to I keep going to keep asking that to give you an opportunity to bring uh, what vision you have to change that messaging change the sort of the direction the leadership of what staff is is investigating and what the staff is communicating and how much how far up because i don't think we're hearing from the top i think the staffs of the water including the governor yeah in orange county are, are really excellent uh for the most part i think it is a lack of direction from the top yeah i make no doubt about it orange county in Orange County, the Municipal Water District of Orange County is the climate change battleground for Orange County, not only in the near term, but 
a little bit down the road uh, until we actually have firm plans on how we're going to deal with the fact that the water that they're responsible for is disappearing. And they don't have firm plans. If you go through their website, you'll see words like resiliency, drought will be mentioned. But, I mean, the number one problem on their news page is COVID, which they don't have any control over. I mean, it's something to deal with. But why are they not talking about forming short-term, near-term, long-term climate action plans? What are they going to do? Part of this is because the water they get comes from a larger agency that they have limited control over, but they are the third largest block of votes. All the other agencies getting water for the Metropolitan Water District, the larger district, are also, they're in the same boat. San Diego gets even more imported water than Orange County does. So there are opportunities there for people to really prioritize what are we going to do about the situation we're in, the situation we expect to be in, in the near term. And then also working with our counterparts like the Orange County Water District, the other wholesaler, have a more coordinated operation there, and then working more effectively with the downstream water districts. They're not all equally good. We have a huge amount of influence over them as water importers. And I, it's, I think it's imperative to come in and say we've got to reprioritize, we've got to pivot, we've got to catch up, we've got to do some sustainable planning for a change. Well, I, I guess, do you see that the agency, because you're, you're not giving a nod to, to staff, they're good, but do you think that with if there's leadership, and the governor has to help you out with this. You can't, you can't do this without the governor. And the governor's been a little bit diffident. That'll be my word. You, I won't put words in your mouth, Randy. But if you've got the staff ready to sort of like, finally, we've got the leadership and we're going to, that you pivot is doing a lot of work in that, that word choice there, like haul, haul in a whole new direction, is that you, you can set ambitious kinds of, you know, a, performance of, of, of water savings and I'll get bring everybody along and so and I, I didn't get to use this analogy last week when I was talking about the magic of leadership and it is magic is that it, the same could go for water conservation and water water management literacy for that on the, the whole broad spectrum of the public we saw when there was this heat dome moving along in all over the whole state of California. People got the heads up and were asked, please cut your use down. Use, that's electricity. That's, that's electricity, not energy. But if those same messages could say really intellectually, honestly, to all ratepayers, all users, the same kind of thing to bring everybody along the way people averted the rolling blackouts because they really, really drastically reduced their energy use in a time where it would be, was very hard for them to do that. So you've got stuff. So what do you see that that was an example to us that you could bring along more people with a different kind of leadership and you and point to it, say you all could do it with electricity. Now do it with water. That's a local example. We've also seen in many other places like Las Vegas and, and other near places where people have rapidly conserved water when they've been asked to and when they've been properly incentivized. So it is something we can do. There's, you know, there's a strange dynamic, though, in Orange County because we're increasingly using reclaimed, recycled water to avoid importing more water. That's one response. However, there's been a little pushback when conservation strategies come up because to reuse water, you have to use water, obviously. And so when people right. are talking about conserving water, they actually complain that maybe the reclamation plants won't be getting enough water uh, into them in order to reclaim it and recycle it. 
So that dynamic is, a, is something that has to be managed that I think is, is right now one that they're really having trouble sort of negotiating because IRWD has pushed back a little bit unofficially saying, you know, if, if we really conserve a lot less water, they're complaining about the new standards that are coming up in the, a bill that's on the governor's table for per capita water use in residential homes, which by 2030 will be 42 gallons per person per day. And they're saying that level is so low that our reclamation strategies won't work. So you can see there's an interesting dynamic there. Yeah, well, interesting. So what do you do? Yeah, I, you have to do both. You have to come up, have a reclamation strategy that deals with less water. So, you know, the water that you do import has to supplement the aquifer, uh, which, is, which they're doing. I mean, the largest consumer of this imported water, single consumer, is the Orange County Water District, which uses it to recharge the aquifer. So you have to use less water but have a reclamation strategy that can can cope with that. That functions. Yeah. So that means we're going to have to reduce water use at some level. A neighbor said, are you saying I'm going to have to give up my roses? And I said, no. But we there's the notion of non-productive turf that people talk a lot about, which means the grass that isn't really doing anything. So there are things like that where, which are the obvious targets. Within the state, you know, we also have this agricultural use versus urban use. Right. And that's a larger share. But... So um, agriculture is 80 percent of the water use traditionally in California. So you can reduce it by 5 percent and it increases the urban water use by by 20 percent or 25 percent. So you can see there are these political dynamics. And that's why the governor honestly has a hard job. I mean, he's had some more aggressive strategies that have come up this year for water strategies. These include a new way to bring more water from northern California down through the state water uh, project, which is that channel that runs along the, the five. Perf- yeah, we're going to talk about that, yeah. So he's got, you know, for example, the people in Orange County that want to bring in more water, they talk about more water, they talk about storage and the delta, the Bay Delta, and getting more water around that. And that's what the peripheral canal is, the other word for that. The peripheral I'm, I'm canal, which up. is the term from the 70s that people used, which they avoid using now because it had, it didn't succeed. It was politically ineffective because Northern California voted against it. Right. Oh, it was two, and then now it's down to one. But that's not gone away. It's, so for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Randall Crane, Professor Emeritus at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs, consultant and Irvine resident. He's running for the Director Division 5 of the Municipal Water District of Orange County. We're talking admittedly about many, many different districts uh, and jurisdictions throughout water distribution and management, shall we say. So I want to get to the... The people that were, this is a, it's bringing in this now, this peripheral canal. The people who propped up the Poseidon desalination plant and who drafted the California Water Supply Infrastructure Account initiative that did not qualify for the statewide proposition this year. And, and also there's the peripheral tunnel we're talking about to divert water from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. What was... MODOX, and I, I say that, that's the short end, the Municipal Water District Orange County. What was MODOC's role in all of those ed- endeavors? And I know that's breezing you through a lot, but I want the people to see what that leadership alignment is and the agenda is for this agency that is so powerful that we've never heard of. You packed a lot into that question. Yeah, I know, I know, but people got to know okay. this as tight as they can. Let me start, and, you'll, and I'll catch up if you remind me what I missed. So... Uh, the people that are focused on imported water particularly 
want to bring, they've never met a, a Bay Delta diversion project they did not like. And they love their infrastructure, period. You have to build stuff and you, you move more water down south. And of course, it's, it's caused it, uh, a big tension in the past, uh, for I don't know, 50, 60 years now between Northern California and Southern California. I did that study of San Francisco that you mentioned, which is in a very unique and interesting situation. And I got a call from a Northern California journalist who said, you're from Southern California. I said, well, now... She said, so is this just a plot to take more of our water? It was an academic study and a policy study of how to reform San Francisco's water system. You can't be too careful. It wasn't. (laughs) There was no water coming to Southern California. The really sensitive about it is the point that I got out of all that. So down here, they support anything the governor wants to do that will bring more water down. So Poseidon was an example of that. This is the big desalination plant that was in Huntington Beach, which now has been killed. I think it's buried. Uh, that was one that was a lot of support for on some agencies, the Orange County uh, Water District in particular. Uh, I don't think MODOC took as strong a view on it. They are supporting the new smaller one that's down in Delaney Beach, uh, which is more ecologically sound and much smaller, and, and the scale is lower, and, and the price and the um, the cost of providing water through those, which is historically super expensive, is lower. So, But they generally support these projects, to the and, and and sometimes complain openly about the environmental co- uh, cost of of doing so, meaning they were less worried about environmental, uh, which is another constituency that needs to be respected. So we we want to save the fish, we want to save the salmon, save the delta smelt. They're trying to help with a project to bring more water into the state water project that does that, and essentially Modoc and and other Orange County agencies are in support of anything that brings more water in. I think the leadership, in particular on the Metropolitan Water District, can say we also need to respect environmental laws at least as much because we're all in this together. So this is another piece of this of, of your background that I think um, we all ought to appreciate. I don't know if you're getting asked on the, the campaign trail this. You're trained in a social science capacity as an urban planner and largely water managers, name it from local to regional to, to like na- national regional, they're mainly engineers. So talk to us about what might make your leadership a bit more sort of to the point of managing this resource with the sort of the social science part versus the engineering part. Because engineers, every hammer looks like a nail in terms of like this infrastructure bias, but there's, there's other, there's a, what do you bring as a social scientist? We all have our expertise biases, but you've you've touched on something that I think is really important, which is that the water world is a little bit of a bubble. It's a bunch of water engineers, secondly, a bunch of water lawyers, and then other people that are interested in essentially urban development and want to support growth in, in the region. That's fine. I mean, you need engineers to build this stuff. They do. Their civil engineering projects are the heart of this whole operation. That said, they don't understand human behavior the way that social scientists do. I'm an economist, trained as an economist primarily, and you, we understand incentives and disincentives, and we understand governance reforms and incentives and disincentives in a way where engineers are a little more textbook about how to proceed and deal with, with problems as they come along. So I wouldn't want to replace engineers, but I think a world that's exclusively engineers is um, is a risk because they're they're kind of a closed society. They don't have as creative and, and fresh outlook on the problems that they face because they're not 
quite as sensitive to these behavioral issues that are associated with it. And obviously, if you're talking pe in people into using less water, if you're trying to deal with the environment in a responsible manner, you need to understand behavior. So I think I bring that perspective to the boardroom where um, maybe you know engineers would not see different ways of looking at, at, at this problem. You need, a, you need a fresh voice. You also need turnover in these boards. I mean, a classic problem in water districts is that incumbents always win. Um, so as a result, they stay there. Some very, of them run very long time. unopposed, even. So I mean, that's really bakes it in. I I don't know the number of people running unopposed this year, but the Irvine but Ranch the Water past. District yeah. has at least two people running unopposed. The municipal water district of Orange County has one, maybe one or two people running unopposed, which means they don't have an election. I don't know what it means to call somebody an elected official if they haven't had an election for a very very long time. Uh, there are people that sit on these boards for thirty, forty years. And, I mean, talking about fresh perspectives, I mean, you're just not going to... They season, they obviously have uh, a lot to contribute and have contributed over time, but we need some turnover, some turnover at least. So I'm bringing a fresh behavioral disciplinary perspective and on a set of problems I've worked on for decades around the world, and I think it can only help um, broaden the perspective of the board members and, and contribute to the conversations they have to deal with these really, really hard problems that we're going to face in the future. So I, I mentioned we're talking about infrastructure, huge centralized facilities, and so I don't. I my listeners have heard me with uh, bringing on guests who t talk about some distributed water, some decentralized closed loop solutions. Is that in your toolkit? So this is where you're talking about like building by building or. or all right, as a closed loop, so there, you don't you don't need to go all the way to the centralized tertiary water plant. You can capture everything, so you get an energy and you get a water saving. So I don't know if that's some something in, as I say, in your toolkit. I'm, I don't know the technology well, but I'm guessing that it's that it's here that we could do it on a very individual basis. I think it happens in some instances. Uh, I would wonder about the cost of doing that at scale. I mean, you may, it may be that a very decentralized system is, is available and functional and feasible. I don't know how efficient it would be to deal with the kind of scale issues we're talking about. The reason we have typically one retail water district at a time, that you don't have the, the choice of where to get your water, is because the scale of that industry is it's called a decreasing cost industry. And it just makes more sense to make it bigger rather than have competitors because of all the infrastructure you would have to replace. So, I mean, what we're seeing now in the energy sector is they're sharing the transmission lines. But in, when, if the only one company could use a line at a time, you don't want more than one company. You don't want more transmission lines. But now we're starting to share things. Maybe in the water sector we can do that more in the future as well. But I think the only issue I can think of in terms of what to consider with what you're calling a distributed water system, a closed-loop system at, the, at a very, very small scale is just the cost. But it is something we're doing at a larger scale. I mean, that's basically the idea we were talking about earlier with Orange County now recycling a lot of water at the county level, at least at the basin level, and having that loop where it's they're going to reuse as much of the water they use as possible. But, I mean, again, this plant that they've built, these are billion-dollar enterprises. Do you think of spreading that technology around from house to house uh, there might be cost issues, but otherwise, why not? So I have so many more questions, but I I just want to, um, but this is giving people food for thought about where your mind is, what you can contribute in terms of maybe the kind of 
the conventions that are baked in, that are slow walking, addressing the solution to this pretty urgent situation that affects absolutely everybody. And I, the, the proportion of the ag users versus the residential may not play as much of a role here in Orange County. I mean, there is ag in Orange County, but, but if you're involved as an appointment to the Metropolitan Water District and that board, you would be making those kinds of decisions. Well, except so, that the Colorado River water that comes into California, first it goes to uh, Imperial County. They get first dibs. If you fly over eastern uh, San Diego County and into Imperial County, that part of the desert turns green. I mean, right, that's right, where the yeah, water we, gets used first. Right, right. So, but and I'm, so we're in, at the actually end of the Colorado River priority list. So if there's less agricultural water used in California, there would be more for us. Right, right. And that's where we're at the end of that. It's not necessarily mm. you're making the ag decision here, but and, but at the Met level, exactly. you would be making that exactly. you're in the boardroom. Well, so quickly, as we wrap this all up, and I know listeners are frustrated, they want to know more, but how can people meet you? And there's, I think you've got a... You've got a D- Democrats of Newport Beach meeting coming up tomorrow. Did I see that tweeted as well? Where can they, how can they follow you and hear more from you with more questions? They well, have? Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm available to come and talk to any group anywhere in, in uh, the county, not just in my division, which is 360,000 people. So it's a rather large division, but I'm, a, I'm available. I have been, I should mention my endorsements. I've kind of, unusually, I think for a water district, I've been endorsed by Representative Katie Porter, also State Senator Dave Min, also the Orange County Democratic Party. I'm speaking with the Newport Beach Women's Democratic Club on Thursday at their event at 6 o'clock in Corona Del Mar. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking these questions in rapid fire, and I know there's more, and I hope that you you get pressed pretty hard with people giving you some really good questions so that it's giving you more about what's on their mind and you giving them an opportunity to be as sophisticated as a ratepayer as they can in the, the MODOC area. Honestly, the main thing I would like is to, to make the Municipal Water District of Orange County more visible. I think to people need to understand that agency exists, that is there, that it's important, and that it's a really important uh, element of our climate change strategy for the county in the future. Okay, thank you. That's uh, water to drink, you know, in the Portuguese rendering there. So, well, so Randy Crane, I thank you so much for giving us your time. And I don't always remember to thank candidates, but I thank you as a candidate for running for this office. It's so important for us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My guest was Randall Crane, professor of UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs and Irvine resident. He's running in the Municipal Water District of Orange County's Division 5, serving Alisa Viejo, Dana Point, Irvine, Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, Laguna Niguel, and uh, let's see, I, I think I mentioned them all, and Mission Viejo, parts of Irvine, and a few unincorporators. We'll be right back with Brenda Lynn, who's running for mayor this time. Stay close. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Branda Lynn. She's co-founder of the Irvine Watchdog, and she's been on numerous times. This time, she is a candidate running for the city of Irvine, the mayor there, and she's challenging our incumbent, Farah Khan. She is one of four candidates, Branda, is challenging the incumbent. 
this Candace's particularly interesting arc shows it in her campaign website, and it's an arc that will register with regular listeners to this show. Brandilyn is an Irvine native and co-founder, as I've said, of Irvine Watchdog, volunteer-based website promoting transparency, honesty, and accountability from our local government. And her professional life pursuits include paralegal work at several different Irvine law firms and New York City firms, too. She served as an Irvine Community Services Commissioner, Irvine Children Youth Families Advisory Committee, and a driver previously with Meals on Wheels, and an organizer for families. Forward Food Drives and board member of the National Women's Political Caucus of Orange County. We talked about the state Women's National Women's Political Caucus just last week on the show. Branda completed her undergraduate studies here at UCI with her BA in music performance and political science. She comes to us today from her home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader candidate, Branda Lynn. Thank you so much, Claudia. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's, I just got to ask this first, how and why did you decide it's time to transition from being a community activist and advocate to wanting to become mayor? That's a great question, and I get that very uh, frequently. Um, you know, I've been following our city council meetings for the last four years through Urban Watchdog. And what's been happening in the last year and a half, the undemocratic decisions that are been, being made, the frustration in our community, whether it's the all-American asphalt issue, whether it's the Orange County Power Authority issue and the mass confusion that we're seeing right now in our community, whether it's the great park um, residents that are frustrated with the lack of transparency, the lack of answering simple questions as to where their special tax money is going. I felt like it was time that we needed new leadership. I believe very strongly that we need a new mayor here in Irvine. Well, that's it's a it's a very important pivot, and we're going to be listening in the background to some answers to your questions in the, the remaining time we have for this show today. Unfortunately, is <laughs> how you are going to make how you'll be effective because you've been really calling all of the council out on various policies and uh, maneuverings with agenda setting and all that. So um, it's going to be a it's a it's going to be a tricky kind of a of a, a role here. So. Let's have you uh, map out uh, the manner in which the Irvine constituents are being served in agenda setting and being heard at the council meetings, whether personal in person there or virtually. How are you going to um, set some uh, policies that are addressing the very the residents' access to interacting with the council? Sure, and I actually just made a quick video, um, and I posted it on social media this morning. Um, Just three quick, easy ways we can increase transparency and public participation. One is, you know, at the last council meeting on Tuesday, the council chambers were packed. The Orange County Soccer Club came and filled council chambers, and it was really exciting to see. But I was standing in the back, and I also saw some parents with young toddlers there who were dedicated, wanted a voice, wanted to be part of the decision-making process, and I commend them. But they, the public shouldn't have to wait indefinitely for the council to come out of closed session. And what happened was, and this has happened before, closed session items are at the very beginning of our council meeting. And they go, you know, to the back, and we don't know when they're going to come out. We hope that they'd be back in an hour, but this time it was almost two hours that the public had to wait. Now, that's when the meeting got started, when they came out around 6, then there were presentations. So the public comments, we still had to wait another at least 30 minutes before public comments started. And that makes it very hard on a lot of our families. That's, this is after work, during dinner time. A lot of us have kids. And so what we can do is move closed session items to the very end of the meeting. That way, 
um, closed session items are on the council members' time and not the public. Um, another thing we can well, do Brandon, one moment. Just so the close is that a convention that's been reversed because didn't it previous was it previously at a later time or um, how how has this has this changed the, the convention? It hasn't changed, but it's just something that I've noticed, something that has made it just more difficult. And I think it's an easy solution to making sure that we reprioritize the residents. I mean, after all, you know, City Hall is the people's hall. It's our hall. And I think it's time we uh, prioritize our community and our residents. And that's just just one simple way. I haven't brought this up with you before, Um, but it's something I did notice after the last meeting. And I thought, you know what, That's, that's an easy fix. Let's get these meetings started. Let these people get be heard, get their three full minutes, which, you know, let me get into another issue. Speaking of the three minutes, uh, recently the council decided, depending on the number of speakers, to, to limit the amount of time we get for public comments. Now, before this, we've always had three minutes, which really isn't that much. But now what the council has decided is, cumulatively, if everybody comes and there are over 20 speakers on all items, then you get two minutes. And if there are over 30 speakers, then we only get 90 seconds. Now, why this is unfair is, let's say I show up and I want to speak on the budget item, which no one else wants to speak on. And let's say 30 people show up to speak on the All-American Asphalt issue. Well, I still only get 90 seconds. So we show up to city council, wait for our turn, right, meeting to start. If there's closed session again, we have to wait. And then we only get 90 seconds to speak. This has never been happened before. There have been exceptions to the rule when, let's say, a lot of um, members of the public come to speak, then the council will apologize and say, you know, just due to the number of speakers and um, just to keep things going, I apologize. You know, and they're graceful and gracious about um, having to do that, and they, they apologize. But now what the council has done is make it, made, made it a policy. It's on the agenda every time. And it's really, you know, this is just another step that's really taken away the voice of the people in Irvine. And thankfully, the rule of two, which was in place since day one, when our current mayor, as soon as she got elected, she placed on the agenda, this was her very first policy item, of the rule, what, was, what became known as the rule of two, which was an agenda-setting policy that limited um, the public's ability. Let's say we had one advocate on the council who wanted to agendize something we were concerned about. It prevented them from doing, being able to do so unless they had the support of another council member. Now, the problem is um, maybe it was a way for the council to better work together, but in practice what we saw was over 15 items that members of our community wanted to be heard on that were denied and were ignored. And for the first year and a half, and this is including big items, including the Orange County Power Authority issue, the All-American Asphalt issue, and the Great Park issues. These are the biggest issues that residents have shown up to meetings and asked for, you know, public hearing, some information, some transparency, and they were denied for the first year and a half, Claudia. We have not seen this before in our city's 51-now-year history. And, you know, what was really sad for me was, you know, our city was incorporated in 1971, and our 50th anniversary was celebrated just last year. And while we, you know, our history is so rich, we were, you know, the environmental leaders at one point, um, other cities wanted to be like Irvine. We led as a municipal government the world at one point. You know, we received a United Nations award for banning CSC's coral fluorocarbons. We were the first city to do that, and we led the way internationally even at some point. And it shows the power and the good we can do at a local level. 
We don't have to wait for the state. We don't have to wait for the county. We can lead. And knowing our city's rich history in environmental protections and leadership, um, seeing what we're seeing now, it's, it's really disheartening. And it's, um, you know, and that's all the more reason why I believe we need independent leaders who, who appreciate our city's history, who know the good we can do, who, who have been um, in tune with the issues that have been um, raised in our community. And I've done that at least in the last four or five years through Urban Watchdog. Whether it's an issue that I personally cared about or not, I help different community groups navigate our municipal government because I believe everybody should be heard. Everyone vo- everyone's voices matter. And just to see the turn that, that our local government has taken with this current city council, I believe it's time for change. For those of you who've just tuned in to Ask a Leader, my guest is Branda Lynn, co-founder of Irvine Watchdog, on the show today as a candidate for mayor challenging the incumbent Farah Khan. Branda is one of four candidates challenging the incumbent mayor, and I've got several of those other challengers on my calendar. I'm still pursuing uh, others to get them on, and others that uh, that are invited were previously not in the last election cycle. They were on the ballot, so I'm hoping I'm hoping they're more inclined in 2022. So I think I'm going to turn this Branda Lynn into a bit of a lightning round of positions on that. We've got, I mean, there's the usual suspects, OCPA. You've mentioned that a little bit, and it was, a, it was like one of the best stump speeches I've heard that spoke substantively. That, yeah, I've got to give you that, um, that you just gave us, and it talks to so many important issues. But the the OCPA, we're at T-minus, good grief now, is it T-minus 12 for people to start opting uh, particular ways for that? And you're saying that that was not an agenda item until just like these last laps. So I guess the what would you do uh, in a rapid fire here with these different areas of the uh, now, the OCPA board members, regardless of whether they still are holding the position where you to become mayor, what would you do as mayor to uh, have the Irvine city represent an OCPA differently? Well, we need to replace our two Irvine representatives that are serving on the OCPA board. We currently have Mayor Farrah Khan and Councilmember Mike Carroll, and they've done nothing despite all of the concerns um, that have been addressed since its inception. Right. Irvine Watchdog volunteers have been watching and reporting on this before the Voice of OC, before the Orange County Register, before the LA Times. Now it's blown up, and, you know, the county and the state, as well as our city, have asked for audits because there's been no transparency. And even when asked for financial documents, how um, these contracts have been um, have agreed upon, what are the terms of the contracts, they haven't handed them over. In addition to just my personal public records request, as well as others in our community. I understand. There's, I'm sorry, Brand. I understand that there's some, some performance levels that are uh, leaving a lot to be desired. But uh, how would you, though, if the incumbent mayor remains on the board, even if the incumbent mayor is voted out, how do you, as a new mayor... Get a diff- How do you get the vote to, to remove a board member? Well, we need to open up and revise the joint powers agreement and change the That's term. what you would do. You'd have to go in yes. and tinker with that machinery. Okay, so right. um, so that's, uh, but we're, uh, we're watching and I'm, I'm happy to carry the water. OCPA, they, the staff now knows I will send out public service announcements so people know what's going on because I keep meeting very sophisticated residents who have no idea this is coming. So I right. want to ask about then there are, the municipal districts, the district elections. What's your position on that? I believe it's time we need to go into district elections. 
um, running a campaign now at large, you see firsthand the difficulty in trying to reach, you know, we're at, what, over 310,000 residents now with over over 150,000 voters. Um, If you don't have special interest money backing you, it makes it very difficult for um, independent candidates, grassroots candidates, to really get their name out there, because at the end of the day, it's a, it's a battle against big money. So I believe it's time to move into district elections. Um, we could have saved a lot of money. Instead of litigating, we could have just um, led the way, come up with the maps on our own, and decided to um, really increase representation, because among the 16 largest cities in California, we're still the only one here in Irvine using at-large elections. So, and in addition to that, I think it goes hand in hand with expanding the size of the city council. We are currently the largest city that only has five city council member representatives. Um, other cities that are similar in our size have seven to nine even. So, you know, our city, we have to plan for not only today, but the growth that we're going to see. Our city is going to grow and we're still growing rapidly. So in order to make sure that the representation reflects our numbers and what we're seeing in the data, we need to not only move into district elections, but expand the size of the city council. To a point you made earlier about the visionary leadership that Irvine's been known for, the CFC ordinance, among other things, there uh, we have there has been an exemplary target set for the city level reducing greenhouse gas emissions. What, Brandalyn, is your position on building an electrification ordinance that would help the city achieve the greenhouse gas emission reduction goals? Well, I think with our current RENA numbers, the regional um, housing needs allocation that the state has um, handed down to Irvine, which is we need to plan and build an additional 23,610 homes over the next what is it now, seven years and by 2029 or eight years. Um, so we, what we have to do is we have to make sure that we build and put the density in areas that have um, transit options. And so we're looking at the spectrum area and the urban business complex. In terms of building electrification, you know, I think it's, a, it, well, it's something we need to move toward. And, you know, what, though there's pushback because people don't like change. I mean, you just think about something simple like switching from reusable bags to the grocery, you know, the plastic bags we used to have. People were complaining. But over time, people get used to it. And I think one thing we can do, and I have to credit um, our current mayor, she did hold a, a community forum of sorts where they taught people how to cook on induction stoves. I think things like that for the community, more of those options so people can come and it gets, you know, they can see firsthand, oh, it's not such a bad change. Actually, it's a lot cleaner. It looks nice. And you don't have to smell the gas, you know, when you, every time you cook. And it, it cooks just as well as gas ranges. It's just trying to educate um, and get people comfortable with the idea. But I think it's necessary given our climate crisis. And because we have to build so many homes, I think it's time to show that leadership. And with these new communities, making them bikeable, walkable, but also elect- going towards electrification. And um, there are ways that we can just make sure that we become the environmental leaders that we once w- once were. And really helping the residents get used to these ideas. Either, even older homes in Irvine that need upgrading, you know, giving them options and showing them that, you know, they can electrify their homes when it comes to new appliances or, you know, um, when it comes to upgrades in their homes. So I think it's a matter of just being out in the community, educating them, demystifying some of it, and um, making it a lot more um, comforting for a lot of people who are maybe a little wary of these changes. 
Well, another infrastructure item is the broadband contract that the city's been negotiating. There's some. Uh, can you break down what you understand is going on in the background and where you could get the project back on track, Brenda Lynn? Well, you know, I, there hasn't been much reported back to the public, and I only get information that you are getting, that we're getting. So um, I don't know what's going on on the back end. Um, all I know is, you know, whether it's this broadband issue or all the other issues, we can do, we can and we need to do more to keep the public apprised of what's happening. And we need milestones and deliverables. And that's one thing I guess I wasn't answering your first question early on, where what can we do? What can we, how can we change what's been happening? And what we, what we, what we need to do is deliver measurable change, um, follow-ups, you know, okay, staff, this is your to-do, here are your goals, here are your deadlines, okay, and let's put it on the agenda for the next meeting. And we need more updates as we go along. And I think because we haven't done that, whether it's the climate action plan or whether it's, you know, getting back on the special tax in the Great Park, we just don't hear back. A lot of times it'll be agendized once and then it's gone. This broadband issue, I haven't seen an update in months. So I really don't know, but what I can do and what we should be doing as a city is making sure that the community is updated. And I've asked for this and advocated for this before during public comments, during city council meetings, where they, the city should update our um, city's website, um, especially regarding all the development and the broadband issue, which has been coming up, and just kind of give us updates on what's been going on instead of the community having to go to each other. Um, on social media, asking each other questions. It should be coming from the city. And all the city council members have social media feeds. But a lot of times, the vast majority of the time, it's really nothing substantive. It's become, where should, you know, great places to eat. And this is important because we have a lot of small businesses and not to take away from that, but there needs to be a balance and we need to be informed on the decisions that are being made. And rarely do we see agenda items, um, an update on a, a particular issue, like the broadband issue, anything substantive. Instead, we're getting a lot of, in my opinion, fluff. And Irvine residents are smart. They want more. They want me. And it's time we keep them apprised on what's been going on and the, the, the decisions that are being made at City Hall. So quickly, the rule of two, how do you uh, dispense with that for good as a mayor? Well, it, it, it's gone now. I don't plan on ever bringing it back. And I would... Um, you know, I think the community at this point, they're fed, they've been fed up with it. They're gone. They're glad it's gone. But should any council member try and attempt to bring this back, I think there'd be a lot of pushback and it would really show that they're not listening to the community. I, I just don't see any council member attempting to bring it back. And if so, there'd be a lot of pushback. So I wouldn't be too concerned. Well, I'm sorry I didn't get to ask about all the other uh, the policy areas. Folks can go to your website to get some. Just quickly, where can people follow you as well as meet you uh, in the last laps here, the, the weeks going into the midterm on November 8th? That's the last sure. question. So my website, brandalynn.com. Um, there's an events page and you can go there. We have a lot of meet and greets coming up. So please come out. You can always reach me on email. It's brandalynnirvine at gmail.com. And I'm also on social media on Instagram, Facebook, um, YouTube has some videos uh, and it's all, you know, Brandall and Irvine. All, the handles are all Brandall and Irvine. So, um, yeah, I encourage everybody to get to know all the candidates. 
my website. I mean, I've been putting so much information <laughs> on it, and I try to cover as many issues as possible. So, um, But if there's something that you, I have not answered, please feel free to reach out. These local elections matter. I hope everybody gets out there and does their research and votes because we really can affect a lot of good change here in Irvine. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, so we're going to thank Branda for being on the show today. We did have so many other topics to uh, to bring up. So thank you, Branda, for, for being on the show and for running for office. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. My guest was Branda Lynn, co-founder of Irvine Watchdog, and she is running for mayor of Irvine, and four others are challenging her. We're getting them on the calendar gradually. That's my wrap. Next week's guest will be Krista Hollingsworth, Chief Operating Officer at our local Planned Parenthood. Then Stephanie Campbell of the League of Women Voters will talk propositions on the ballot. Only seven statewide. Only seven this time. I'm going to close with an announcement that gave me some comfort last night out of San Antonio from Sheriff Salazar. I'm quoting him. I have officially opened a criminal investigation against the individuals who lured and transported 48 migrants from the Migrant Resource Center in San Antonio, Texas, to Martha's Vineyard. If you or someone you know has been impacted, please email bcsotips at bexar.org. Open source folks are busy tracking the new flight, so that's it for me. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.